The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So throughout our, our series uh, in Advent this year, we'll be focusing on what it is to find our true home in a relationship with God. The sort of tagline theme for this series of sermons is something that the church father, St. Augustine, said many, many years ago um, in his sort of, um, li- you know, uh, most important work, The Confessions. And early on in that, he said that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And what he is saying is that each one of us, whether we're Christian or not, whether we have been going to church for a long time or whether this, this is brand new for us, whoever we are, that our, our hearts will be restless. We will have this sense of restlessness unless we locate our full and complete identity in Christ. That unless that happens, we will still be searching We will still be searching for our true home, the place where we truly belong. And so this week, we turn ourselves to another part of the prophecy in Isaiah that begins to put flesh and bones on home. What does home look like for us as human beings? What were we made for? Why do we have this sense of restlessness unless we find rest in Christ? And so we will find ourselves searching Uh, This is what Isaiah is saying. We will find ourselves searching until God's kingdom fully comes. Until we live in God's kingdom under God's rule, submitting to God's authority. And now I want to kind of recognize two basic reactions to what I just said. Because some people might look at that and say, well, how and what kind of God would expect complete and total submission to him? That sounds very authoritarian. That sounds very dangerous. And that's a great question. And I think it depends on who that person that we're submitting to is. Uh, Let me offer, you know, a response to that skeptical person. The idea that we can be autonomous, that we can not submit to authority in any way, that we could be an authority to ourselves in a way, is completely false. It doesn't hold up. It's impossible for a human being not to submit themselves to someone or something. I tried to make that point last week when I shared the quote by David Foster Wallace on worship. But perhaps a more pointed way of talking about this is through through the words of Tim Keller, where he says, Our need for worth, our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity on and value on, we deify. And so what he's saying there is that as human beings, we're created with this gravitational pull for worth. We need to have worth in our lives. And whatever we put our identity in, whatever we chase after, we make into a God. And we will submit to in some way. Whatever that thing is, it will own us. And so the question for us is not whether or not we submit to someone or something, it is how graceful is that thing when you let it down? How graceful is it? But the second sort of um, kickback 
to the question of submission to God and living in his kingdom is the Christian who says, well, Pastor Hayden, I've been a Christian for many, many years. I've been brought up in a Christian home. That's all I've known. So, of course, I live under God's rule and reign. But the biggest danger for Christians is actually saying that. It's saying, well, this is an obvious thing for me. As I said last week, John Calvin, the famous Reformed theologian, said that our hearts are idle factories. And one of the reasons why he said that is because if we are not, as Christians, constantly paying attention to our lives and what we are basing our identities on, then there will, there will over time, be cracks in our foundation. And things, things in this world that pull our identity or attention will seep in through the cracks and there will be rival gods, rival mountains that we will be worshiping, deifying without even realizing it. And so both the skeptic and the Christian has to see Isaiah's words here as a challenge, as something to pay attention to. That this is not an automatic thing for any of us, that we have to look at our own lives and ask ourselves, am I living in God's kingdom? Am I submitting to God's authority? Am I asking myself the tough questions about what do I worship and who do I worship? And so Isaiah is calling our attention to what it is that we are longing for, desiring in our true home, in a relationship with God that comes through Jesus Christ, in a way that actually points us inward and, look, and forces us to look at our own lives and what we're doing or what we're not doing. And so we can expect three kind of things in this passage to be stirred up in us through Isaiah's words. The first is we can expect to be challenged by his justice, the king's justice. The second is we can expect to be humbled by his peace. And the third is we can expect to be empowered by his life. We can expect to be challenged by his justice, humbled by his peace, and empowered by his life. First, let's look at what Isaiah means by being challenged by his justice. If you're unfamiliar with how the Bible talks about justice, think about it like this, okay? Justice is giving people what they deserve. Justice is giving people what they deserve. But what makes the Bible unique in this is that the Bible is clear that we ought not to see people um, as anything other than images of God. It's basic to, um, you know, biblical theology is the idea that every human being is made in the image of God. And as an image bearer, there is a dignity and value that each person carries with them. And so when we talk about each person getting what they deserve, that is meaning that we ought to honor the image of God in them, treat them with the highest regard possible. In this passage, what is front and center is the idea that um, kings in the ancient world were the ones who were actually given the responsibility of creating a just kingdom. They were the ones to bring about justice. It was their responsibility. Specifically in the nation of Israel, Ahaz is the king and he was failing in this. The nation of Israel, as a result of his poor leadership, was failing. They were not a just nation. 
people were not receiving what they deserved as being image bearers of God. And so here Isaiah is prophesying about a future time when justice will once again be established in the world. How will this king king do this, this future king? Well, if we look at verse 4, it says, With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decision for the poor of the earth. Now first, what I want you to notice is who the subject of judgment and justice is. It's not the important people. It's not the people who are, you know, more in the center of attention. It's the, it's the needy. It's the poor of the earth. It's the people who are the outcasts in society, the afterthoughts. This is what comes to the attention of this future king. And now when we see the word judge here, we often think about judgment in a negative way. Right? We, we often... When we say, you know, I, oh, I'm feeling judged, it's in a condemning sort of way. But the, that isn't the way that we should read this passage. In the original language, this, this verse literally means, he will make things just for the needy. And then again, in the very next line, when it says he will give decisions for the poor of the earth, it means that he will actually put himself in the shoes of the poor. That he will find himself identifying with them in the most real way possible and lifting them out of the powerless position that they are in. What it means is that that he will actually make changes to things. That the poor will be lifted out of their poverty. That the oppressed will be treated with justice and dignity and will be brought out of their oppression. Moving on through verses 4 and 5, we read that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Other than being a very intense image, right? What on earth is the Bible talking about here? Well, one person I read this week put it like this. In this, these two verses, it is clear that the authority of the word of this ruler is fully identified with the execution of his will. So no one can resist his power and no injustice will remain in his kingdom. And here is what that means. You know those tough justice questions that we wrestle with and we don't know what to do with? Like how do we help without hurting? Or how do we treat the whole person rather than just the symptoms? Or how can I bring about justice when my sense of justice is broken? The person Isaiah is describing doesn't struggle with any of those things. And his vision for justice and carrying that out will be in complete um, reconciliation with each other. That will be exactly, this is exactly what we hope our politicians will do. be exactly what they say is what will happen. That's what Isaiah is describing here. But now here's where the challenge of this king's justice meets us. And, And the whole justice thing. This is what we are originally tasked to do. God placed human beings to rule the world. In, um, in theology, we sometimes talk about each person being a prophet, a priest, and a king or queen. 
And what that means is that we have each been given agency in the world to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the plants, and everything, and each other. But the problem is that we don't measure up with that. And so when we see this justice that the king is bringing about, and we are drawn to it, we want it. We want to live in a world that looks like this, where the oppressed are no longer oppressed, where the poor are lifted out of their poor position. That ideal actually judges us because we aren't able to live up to that. There is no way we can do this. And so this very idea of justice acts as a judgment against us. By the king ruling in this way, it would mean that God would have a problem with us because we act in unjust ways each and every day. We are challenged by this king's justice. We are also drawn by his peace. Verses 6 to 9 lays out for us a world of peace. Again, if you aren't familiar with the Bible, then it's helpful for you to know that when the Bible talks about peace, it's a more holistic way than the English word peace is generally used. When the Bible says peace, the, the, the Hebrew word is shalom. And shalom, in a very short definition, is a complete reconciliation. A state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension. And so it's much broader than just peace between two entities. It's, it's a full, full, holistic reconciliation and flourishing of every dimension of the world. In preparing for this sermon, I heard a story um, that goes a little like this, and it talks about this, this idea of shalom in this passage and how impossible that is for us to live into that now. As a young parent, I know how exciting the zoo can be. How many people have been to the zoo before? Yeah, the zoo is a, is a great place, right? It's so fun to see all the animals. The downside of the zoo is how much walking there is. Have you noticed that? You look at the map and you look at, how, okay, we want to go see the polar bears that are over here. And then 55 kilometers over to the north is where the orangutans are. And you've got to push this stroller or give this kid a piggyback or whatever. The zoo is an exciting place, but it's so much walking. So, um, so what could we do to change that? Well, one idea that we could try on for size is that instead of, you know, the reason why there's so much walking is because all these animals are in different cages, different places, different habitats, all of this stuff. What if we were to create one gigantic arena? Okay, imagine like a hockey rink with no ice. And then you just put all the animals in there. All right, so the, the leopard, the lion, the snakes, the reptiles, the, the moose, whatever. All in this, in this arena. And then we just let our kids kind of run around. And just explore. And then we could just sit in the stands and have some popcorn and there would be no walking involved. Now would that be shalom? Absolutely not. That would be chaos. That would be destruction. That would be blood. And it, would, it would be a nightmare, frankly. Why? Because we are incapable of living in that kind of shalom. 
But this, friends, this is what this prophet is, is describing here. That this world that this king will bring about is one where that kind of zoo is possible. Think about that for a moment. A world with no danger. A world with no pain. A world with no brokenness. The tension here in the prophecy of Isaiah is that though we are drawn to this, though we long for this, we have absolutely no way of bringing it about. The infant can never play near the cobra's den. The young child will never be able to put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither, they will be harmed and will be destroyed if that happens. And yet there is a future time that we're told where there will be this complete shalom, a complete reconciliation, a fullest flourishing in every dimension. The big question is, how does this king bring this about? And how do we participate in that? How do we belong to that home? Because that sounds like it's the best place in the world. And the, what we have to do is we have to be empowered by his life. The hint is the seeming contradiction in verses 1 and verses 10. Look at verse 1 for a second and it tells us a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now this is a metaphor when, when in the ancient times when a shoot would come up from a stump. That means that someone has descended from someone. Or you come out of something. A shoot comes out of a stump. Isaiah is saying that this king is going to come out of the family of Jesse. And we know that the family of Jesse was the family that King David was from. And so, you know, we can, we can look down in the story of the Bible and know that, you know, Jesus, descendant of David, so there's, there's parallels there. And we can see that that, that makes sense that, that the Christ, the, the king, is, is prophesied as being a shoot of Jesse. But that's not all. If we go down to verse 10, we see something strange. In verse 10, it says that this king is not just a shoot of Jesse, but that they're also the root of Jesse. Do you notice that? That the prophesied king is the, shoot, the one coming out of Jesse, but the one who Jesse came out of. How does that work? I don't know too many people who are the source of life that come out of that life. So what is actually being said here by Isaiah? I think it's actually telling us the Christmas story. What is the Christmas story? The Christmas story is that Jesus Christ, the God of this world, was born into this world. Jesus came from the line of David, but he was also the root of the line of David. He was the source of David. He was the source of all things. John, in the first chapter of John, the Word became flesh, yes, but the Word was in the beginning. The source of life became life. The creator became the created. And what does that mean for us? It means a few things. First, that this is no ordinary king. Ordinary kings and queens are not the source of life. They come into power and they rule because they're voted in or because they're born into the right family, born out of the right family. 
But this king is different, and this qualifies Jesus to be the king of our lives in a completely unique way. If you do not give your full allegiance to the source of life, it is foolishness. It reminds me of a part of The Magician's Nephew. If you can remember that um, C.S. Lewis novel where Aslan is creating Narnia. And those two kids get to witness this. And they witness him just breathing life. But what happens after those creatures are created? They don't just go and run around and do their own thing. They gather around Aslan. That's the natural thing. The created to follow the creator. Anything else would be foolishness. But this also means the root and the shoot means that the, this king, the creator, is committed to this world in a way that is, that is just incredible. Because he does not maintain his high position of power and lord it over us. No, the source of life became life and becomes life in a completely different way than we would expect. He doesn't go to the high place, to the palace. He isn't born into the most important um, you know, pl uh, place in, in the kingdom. You know, the magi, they go to the, the, the king of the area and they say, where is this new king? And, and Herod goes, I don't know. Because Jesus was not born in the center of the universe, but in a small, tiny, afterthought village. In a, in a barn that smelled like pee. That's Christianity. The source of life becomes life in the most radical way possible and identifies with us. It isn't a religion that is wise or powerful or strong in the eyes of the world. It isn't a religion that requires us to try harder or to do more, to gain power. It's a religion of grace. It's a religion of weakness where the creator identifies with the created. And this is what Christianity offers to us. God knows that on our own we could never find our true home. We cannot bring about justice. We cannot bring about shalom. Despite our longing for it, we are constantly going to be characterized by conflict, by strife, by sin, by injustice. There's wrath on us. We aren't living like we should. And each of us deserves to be condemned. But Jesus Christ becomes one of us. Lower than the low. And without sacrificing his righteousness, he allows himself to be judged in our place. He lived a perfect life but was condemned by an unjust trial. He was characterized by peace, by shalom, right? He brought reconciliation. He forgave sins. But he allowed himself to lose a power struggle that led to his execution. He stepped into our shoes, your shoes, so that by his death you could be set free. By his death he satisfies the challenge of justice. He allows himself to be judged in our place. And he fulfills our longing for peace and shalom by reconciling all things to his, himself through his life, death, and resurrection. Because of Jesus, the world will be different and is different. And because of Jesus, we can participate in that. Because of his life, his death, and resurrection. And the, life, uh, the song we're about to sing talks about this world. This world that we're created for, this home. 
that we long for. That through Jesus and submitting ourselves to him by making him the king of our lives, we can participate in that right here, right now. The uh, second verse is particularly striking. And it goes like this. Though I am small, my God, my all, you work great things in me. And your mercy will last from the depths of our past to the age of the age to be, end of the age to be. For your very name puts the proud to shame, and to those who would for you yearn. You will show your might, put the strong to flight, for the world is about to turn. Let's pray. Lord God, we long for this uh, kingdom to come in more and more ways through us. Empower us by your life, death, and resurrection. May we be changed by the upside-down world that you have given to us. It isn't by being strong and powerful that things change. It's by being, um, being humbled, by living out of weakness. Lord, I pray that this Advent season would be a time that we come to know our true home in a relationship with you more and more that we would not disconnect ourselves from you and your grace, that we would see that as the very basis for our entire being. Lord, the world is about to change. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.